On this episode of Lifespan, we talk to Steve Bild, Renee Pollock, and Mary Costello, who each have experienced the death of their longtime spouse. They talk about their marriages, their spouse's death, and their lives after their lifetime partner died. Participating in this podcast was a way for them to honor their spouse's impressive legacies, while also helping others who might find themselves coping with similarly profound loss. We begin with Steve. His wife, Mary Ellen Croto, died just 15 months before I spoke to him for this podcast episode. If her name sounds familiar to Lifespan listeners, I interviewed Mary Ellen for the Living with Chronic Illness episode aired during season one. Despite knowing that Mary Ellen lived with a serious chronic condition, her death still came as an unexpected, terrible shock to everyone who knew and loved her. Mary Ellen and I were married for 42 years, and she had two sons from a previous marriage, and they were four and five years old. And we had a daughter right away uh, who was born approximately a year later. Mary Ellen was a radical feminist artist who was frustrated for a long time that she wasn't able to do her art at various periods in her life, who ultimately was able to achieve all of her life's goals and ambitions in terms of art because of our relationship and my ability to support her financially while she was making art once the kids were grown. She was also very uh, much into politics and she kept up with all the news and she made political banners for any lefty movement that required such a banner. Some of them were actually featured in national magazines. In one of the marches on Washington, I believe it was Newsweek, could have been Time Magazine. One of those two had um, a picture, one huge picture of the march, and it and it happened to be the one that featured her banner. I think the, the slogan was legs against arms with an image of legs walking, trampling bombs underneath their feet. She was known that, you know, here's somebody who could make a banner for you for free, and it would look professional. I mean, it doesn't even surprise me that you say that Newsweek or Time captured that because that's how remarkable her work was. It really, she knew how to draw an audience. She she really could make something eye-catching. She wasn't just an artist. She was also very, very political. And she knew how to combine the two to enormous benefits to certain movements. Right. And, you know, her favorites were environmental and anti-war and for progressive politics and feminism. Feminism really dominated her early work as an artist, but she evolved into art that spoofed right-wing ideology and patriarchy and ultimately environmental issues. In the early years of their marriage, Mary Ellen was focused on their three children. Once the kids were grown, she was able to get her master's degree from Rutgers in fine arts. That was a very important step in her life. After Mary Ellen earned that degree, she and Steve sold the building they had raised their kids in and bought a building that doubled as their home, as well as Mary Ellen's studio and art gallery. It had a uh, a huge store embedded 
as one of the units. And we were able to easily convert that into an art studio with 12-foot ceilings and everything that she needed to actually work on art full time and then just walk upstairs to our apartment. And it was really cool because the studio was at street level, as I remember. And so she could put artwork in the window. And it became a really popular thing for the neighborhood because people were aware of the studio, were aware of the art, and people would come by and see what was in the window that day or that week or that month. They were surprised because it wasn't the neighborhood that was trendy. And we saw some amazing reactions, children, grown-ups, teenagers, everybody, and even gangbangers, you know, people liked it. Every month she got a different artist. And because of her connections, she knew international artists. So we had artists from all over the world show in the window. Part of her mission was to promote art in a public way. The lung ailment that killed Mary Ellen was occupationally related. I asked Steve to describe the toxins Mary Ellen was exposed to over the years as she made her art. Earlier in her career, she didn't realize how dangerous the chemicals are that artists often work with. The first thing that I'm aware of that she was exposed to is polyester resins, and they were used to make sculptures. When she was exposed to that without any gas mask or any protective equipment, she developed a rash, which lasted for years. In 1999, we did a lot of wood stripping. And if you think about it, this paint remover is so strong that when you brush it onto paint, the paint just bubbles up and you can scrape it away. And that type of acidic formula is so, so extreme. If it can do that to paint on wood, one little whiff of it in your lungs is something that should be avoided. And it says use in a well-ventilated place, but that's not defined. Paint thinners? Artists always use paint thinners. All these things can be absorbed to some extent through your skin, not to mention the fumes in the air. So over the years, we think that this is one of the things that contributed to her illness. But she was so embedded with her art. It was such an important part of her life that she wasn't willing to give up art. Mary Ellen was eventually referred to a pulmonologist for her breathing difficulties. When the pulmonologist said um, that she should give up art, I knew that was not an option for her because art was her life. I mean, that was what she did. Mary Ellen's lung condition had progressed slowly. At first, she had a chronic cough. Her doctor ordered an X-ray and a CT scan and then sent her to a specialist who diagnosed her with hypersensitivity pneumonitis. The specialist told her that her condition was incurable and would progress until she would be unable to breathe efficiently. The physician put her on steroids to slow progress of the disease, but she couldn't tolerate the side effects. Then the doctor tried immunosuppressive drugs, but they weren't effective. And it progressed over a three-year period to where she became oxygen, not dependent, but she got home oxygen and she needed it for exertions. Mary Ellen just learned to live with her lung condition. Then, in January 2019, she had knee replacement surgery. Her pulmonologist talked at length with the anesthesiologist to ensure that the anesthesia used during the surgery wouldn't aggravate her lungs. She went through with the surgery, and on day two, I think, we were getting up with the physical therapy, and she couldn't really get out of bed without the oxygen. And uh, But she was doing great, and the physical therapist had her climbing stairs with oxygen. 
But while she was hospitalized in the aftermath of the knee surgery, Mary Ellen's need for supplemental oxygen kept increasing. Then it got worse. She couldn't take the oxygen off even for a minute without being out of breath. And they said that she needed even more oxygen than she was getting. And the only way that they could do that would be to intubate her. And we were both dead set against her getting intubated because there was a possibility that she'd get stuck on a ventilator and not be able to get off. And their scenario was that they would put her on a ventilator for a few days and then they would put her on high doses of steroids. That opened up the prospect that she would die, a possibility that she would die on a ventilator with a steroid psychosis. And at this point, she's completely lucid and she just wants to go on to palliative care. And she didn't want to be tied to the medical system for the rest of her life. Um, which is the best prospect that she had. Over the years, sometimes prompted by experience with their own aging parents, Steve and Mary Ellen had talked with each other about their wishes for end-of-life care. We both knew that neither one of us wanted to die in an ICU on a ventilator in a comatose state, semi-comatose state. We both saw that as prolonging death. Steve, you're not only the son of a doctor, but you worked in hospitals your entire adult life. You were a tech. And when you describe this, this is not only things you've read about, this is what you witnessed your entire adult life at work. I witnessed on on a daily basis, especially at the end of my career, I spent a lot of my time working in ICUs, performing EEGs, brainwave tests. I saw many, many, many examples of people who were kept on the ventilator for extended periods of time, even though uh, there really wasn't a significant chance of their ever recovering from it. And we both knew this is something we did not want to have to happen to us or, or anyone that we loved. Given his professional experience, Steve also knew that Mary Ellen's current set of physicians wouldn't be on board with palliative care. And in fact, they argued quite a bit about it, and they didn't want to bring in the palliative care team. I brought in the chaplain, even though neither of us are religious, because I knew the chaplain would be an ally. Steve describes Mary Ellen's death. Mary Ellen was the oldest daughter, and she had nine siblings. She was also a triplet with two triplet brothers. When we realized that she was going to require palliative care and we didn't know how long this would last, we called everybody immediately and everybody who could dropped what they were doing and came to Chicago. She had the knee surgery on Monday and by Thursday and then Friday, everyone who possibly could had come. One of Mary Ellen's sisters, Suzanne, made a particularly heroic effort to get to Chicago before Mary Ellen died. Her sister, Suzanne, told me that the reason that they had to come was not just for Mary Ellen, but Mary Ellen had told them, unbeknownst to me, that they had to come to be there for me because I would need them when she died. This is probably the first time I've been able to tell that story without choking up because Mary Ellen was thinking about me at the end. 
the Crotos were all singers. Every single one of them had a beautiful voice. They came into the room at the end and they were all singing. They were doing uh, Mary Ellen's favorite Joni Mitchell songs and Mary Ellen was mouthing along. She could hardly breathe, but she was mouthing the words to Joni Mitchell songs and smiling and telling everybody that she loved them. And she said, you know, don't fret. I'm, I'm dying happy. I'm just, I'm just so glad I've got no regrets in my life. We'll hear from Steve again a little later to learn about his life since Mary Ellen died. But now we'll hear from Renee Pollock. Her husband, Michael, died in 2017, almost two years before Steve's wife died. She's had a bit more time to process her partner's death, but of course, the loss remains fresh. I met Michael in 1971. Um, I was 20 years old and Michael was 22. We became best friends for about six months before I finally realized that I, I had been confused about what love was. And I thought, I think I really love this guy. And we moved in together in 1972 and were together until his death. Michael was kind of a Renaissance person. I think if he had lived in another time, he might have been an artisan. He had a lot of, of skills, but not a lot of direction. And he drifted into being a uh, an owner of a music store along with a, a number of other people and stayed with that for 27 years. At 51, Michael began his second career as a high school history teacher after earning a master's degree in the teaching of U.S. history. Watching him evolve from being a kind of, you know, confused early 20s guy into being this very proficient and beloved teacher was my privilege to be on a journey with him through the course of our life. Michael was also a big believer in public service. He was an alderman for two terms. He was the chair of the um, plan commission in our community. He was the head of the food bank board in our community. He served on a lot of task forces. He was a, a carpenter. He could fix cars. I mean, he could just do almost anything. And he imbued me with, the, with that sense in myself that I, too, could do almost anything. You and Michael had two children, mm-hmm. um, Elizabeth and Henry. Mm-hmm. And Michael had a very different relationship with the family he built with you than with his family of origin. Yes, and that, and that was really a critical part of our lives was to make sure that our family did not reflect Michael's own upbringing. Um, Michael grew up in a very uh, comfortable, economically comfortable family on, on the North Shore of Chicago. His parents were very detached from he and his sister and didn't seem to have much interest in knowing who their children were. There was no intimacy in that family and no real connection. And he felt that keenly. So our family, it was a very intimate family. I'm trying to remember the last time I saw Michael, decades and decades ago. He was tall and strapping and healthy, the last person you would imagine to get sick. That's what I thought. I I remember when I first decided that he was the one I was thinking, what a great choice I've made. He'll be the one who'll go on forever. His parents lived to be 96 and 98 years old. And my family had all kinds of terrible stuff health-wise. And I thought, I won't ever have to grieve for this man. 
My kids used to call him the beast. We haven't named the disease yet. Yes. The diagnosis came out of the blue. You had no, he had no indication he was sick. You had no indication he was sick. Oh, no. There was no, there was no sickness at all. He had a, his disease is called Merkel cell carcinoma, which generally starts out as a, as a, a skin cancer. This is the most lethal skin cancer, more lethal than melanoma. Michael's skin cancer showed up as a small spot on his cheek. We uh, thought it was nothing in particular. It didn't look terrible. It just looked like a little reddish, uh, reddish dot with a little, a little blue in it. And um, when he went to his uh, dermatologist, who he had seen for I don't know twenty years, she thought it was a basal cell carcinoma like the other ones that he had had. And a week later, Michael was teaching. I had retired and was caregiving my, my baby grandson. So I was home and she called and she said, you need to sit down. And I said, what does that mean? And she said, you have to get Michael out of school. He has an appointment with a head and neck oncology surgeon in two and a half hours. He has Merkel cell carcinoma. After receiving the diagnosis, Michael and Renee sought every medical option. And rather than living months, as most Merkel cell patients do after being diagnosed, Michael lived for years after that phone call from his dermatologist. We were teammates. His job was to do what he could to deal with the physical ramifications of whatever he was going through. And my job was to try to find any possible treatment that we might be able to try outside the bounds of what was considered standard treatment. I got myself um, to be a scientist very quickly. Michael had to tolerate what everybody found and what everybody tried, and he was willing to do that to stay alive. He wanted to be alive more than anybody I think I've ever met in my entire life. Three days before his death, I said to him, How, do you have any idea what's really happening with you? And he said, I guess I'm dying, but I don't think he really believed it. And my kids who were here with me, at the end of his life, were astonished by the spirit that drove him to keep being alive. And, you know, when I, when I, I said to him, it's okay, everything's going to be okay. And he said, no, it's not. What's the matter with you? Are you jumping ship on me? There was never any of that kind of moment where somebody would just say, I've given everything I have to this and there's nothing left to give. That never happened to Michael. And it was kind of a, a, an awesome thing to watch. My impression from afar always was Michael just adored his life. He, yeah, he did. He loved his family. He adored you. He loved being a teacher. He just had tons of stuff that he was not done with, including, you know, he, he was sad when he had to retire. He didn't want to retire from teaching, so he continued to to go into school. I didn't even know how he could get all the words strung together, and he just wanted to keep on rolling. His cancer ultimately metastasized to his brain and in a bad, in a really bad way. And he had 45 radiation treatments to his head. At some point, it was at least obvious to you and your kids that he was not going to survive this, even if it might not have been completely crystal clear to him. Oh, yes, I knew. Michael spent 32 days in the hospital right before he died, with Renee constantly at his side. She remembers leaving the hospital only once to do laundry, but her goal was to get him home. She wanted him to die in the house they had lived in together since 1978. 
I wanted that intimacy of us as a family without a lot of people who weren't part of us coming in and out. Although we did actually, I have to say, we made some pretty good friends on that cancer floor in those 32 days. But yes, he was home. My kids were here uh, for the last week. They stayed here to be with me because we just couldn't predict what was going to happen. Michael died at home shortly after leaving the hospital. We'll get back to Renee in a few minutes to learn about her life after Michael's death. But now we'll hear from Mary Costello. Steve and Renee were with their partners for more than 40 years, two decades longer than Mary was with her husband, Walter. But Mary's been without her lifetime partner the longest. Mary and Walter began living together in 1973. They married in 1981. And in 1998, Walter died. Absolutely suddenly, as Mary put it. He was my life's partner. I haven't had another life's partner at all. Walter was interested in everything. He was a scientist. He was a neurophysiologist. That was his PhD at Boston University. He loved research. But he was a really good teacher. I think the best teachers are people who love to learn. Walter and Mary moved to Athens, Ohio in 1981 after Walter was offered a job at Ohio University, a joint position in the medical school and the Department of Zoology. In the mid-1990s, Walter began to work on a new innovative curriculum for the medical school. He had this vision of another approach to education, not the lecture format, but the problem-based learning. And he, uh, he wanted to bring that to the medical school. And he went a few places to see how it was done. But it wasn't until Dr. Barbara Ross Lee came and was the dean of the medical school that he got the go-ahead. But Walter's colleagues were resistant to problem-based learning. And in fact, one faculty member said to him, um, you know, when you lecture, you know what they learned, but when you do it this way, you don't know what they learned. And he said, no, when you lecture, you know what you said. You don't know what they learned. By the time I got here, the curriculum that Walter helped design was well underway and had been, and had been um, quite successful for, for a number of years. And faculty members said to me that when they first heard about the design of this curriculum where, where, where students were basically going to pick their own learning topics and where there would be very, very few, if any, formal lectures and a lot of it would be discussion-based, people were kind of outraged and, and, as you said, incredibly skeptical. And they said, we were so wrong. I don't think I ran into a single colleague who didn't say, we were wrong. And Walter got to see some of that, at least. Um which I was really glad about because some of the things that were said to him were extremely hurtful. I think the pressure was just huge on him. And I think that was part of what happened was the stress of it. Because he died a month before the first graduating class. He died in April and they graduated in May. There was no transition for Mary between Walter's vibrant life and work and his sudden death, unlike what Steve and Renee experienced with Mary Ellen and Michael, whose illnesses lasted for years. He went from being alive to being dead. I mean, 
he, he came back from a jog. He jogged every morning. So he came back from jogging and collapsed and died. I heard a thunk, and I, just as I was going into the shower, and I, I thought, oh gosh, something happened to my daughter. You know, the, 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 the bureau fell over. I mean, some dumb thing, and I thought, get a grip, because I am a kind of a person who jumps to conclusions, you know, borrowing trouble. I thought, no, it's fine. Then, just as Mary got out of the shower, Mary's and Walter's 16-year-old daughter, Tirsa, came running into the bathroom. Dad's on the floor in the kitchen. So that was the thunk. And for a long time, I just thought he had fallen. And when in the hospital, I, I, I said, well, you know, maybe he hit his head. But Mary learned in the hospital that it was not falling and hitting his head that caused Walter's unconsciousness. It was his heart. It was ventricular tachycardia. So his heart was just fluttering wildly, and so he would have felt faint. His glasses were on the counter, the coffee was made, and he was lying on the floor. At the local ER, doctors got Walter's heart started again. They, they, they shocked him. I was in there with him, and, but they got his heart going, and they flew him to Columbus. But he never regained consciousness. He was, he was without oxygen for too long. He went to the hospital every day. The nurses would call and say, no change. And I was just so hoping that one day they would call and say, you know, he's, he's coming out of it. Walter was 52. One of the reasons I think that I'm so struck by your story is you and I, every once in a while, we take long walks together. And when people walk together, they talk. And I literally, I think I've said this to you before, I have never been with you, whether it's meeting for dinner or taking a long walk, where at some point in a very natural way, Walter's name comes up. Not in a maudlin way, not in a grieving way. Walter is absolutely ever-present in your life. That is... That's the way, I mean, I always feel like, I'm going to start crying now, too. And, and I don't mean, I don't mean, I don't mean to, to make you tearful no, either. No. But I almost feel like, again, I've never met Walter, but Walter ends up being one of our walking companions because I hear a new story about him. Or I'm going through things at the medical school and you'll say to me, if Walter were there, <laughs> he would be right at your side. Um so, you know, I kind of also feel like he's, he's, a, he's a comrade in arms. You know, it's so funny the way you have made Walter stay alive, um, even for people who never knew him. I asked Mary to describe her life after Walter died, and she said the book that Joan Didion wrote about her own husband's death, The Year of Magical Thinking, really spoke to how she was feeling, especially the book's title. I would be fixing dinner, and I would think, he's going to walk in the door. There were times when I thought, I'm going to wake up, and this is all a dream. And I would have dreams in which he was very present, and I would say to him in the dream, I knew you weren't dead. <laughs> I knew it. But Mary's job as a preschool teacher kept her grounded. 
when I was in the classroom with the children, that is a world that is all-consuming. And I was totally consumed, and I was me, and it was the way it was. I asked Mary to talk about her daughter Tierce's reaction to her father's death. She was still a child, after all, when her father died. My description of my daughter, who lost her father suddenly, practically in front of her when she was 16, is that she didn't miss a beat. She did what she needed to do. She went to a very demanding college. She did extremely well there. And then she went to medical school. Mary thought of Tierce's string of accomplishments as something she was doing for her father. She would not disappoint him at all. And she never said, Dad would be proud of me, but I said it to her. She was never a child who ever challenged us or gave us any hard time. She was God's gift. <laughs> I mean, a death of yes. someone that important yes. really alters everything. The world is different. I'm a survivor. There was no ever inkling in me that I, I would give up, that I wouldn't go on. But really, as I thought about it, what I thought was that Walter loved life so much. He lived until the moment he didn't live. It would be a dishonor to him for me to give up what I have that he loved and would love to still have. At the memorial service, his students and colleagues spoke about him, and I just, it wasn't a sad occasion. I felt like I was so proud of him, and so, it just felt like he was there, the way they talked about him. Mary observed that she's now been without Walter almost as long as they were together. She reflected more on life without him. I read a book in college called The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm. The one thing that I took away from that that I always remembered was that a healthy, loving relationship is two whole people coming together. Not with dependence. They are two whole people who are whole on their own coming and sharing a partnership. And I met him when I was 26. And I was used to being on my own, being alone. And then we were together for that period of time. And then I was alone again. But it wasn't unfamiliar. I wasn't familiar with being alone with a hole in my heart. But I didn't fall apart in the sense that I didn't know how to live as myself. Plus, I had a job. So... Number one, I had something to do. Number two, I had an income. So those pieces were not a problem. And I had many friends. So I wasn't alone. Alone. Now, in the early period after Walter died, all I wanted to do was to talk to people who knew him and loved him. And I wanted to talk about him. And some of my friends were uncomfortable with that because he was dead. I wanted to talk about death. I suddenly thought, you know, what? <laughs> I don't understand death. I don't understand how 
we can be here and then not be here. I had somebody come and visit and, and said, I'm sorry about your loss or whatever. And I started to cry and she said, oh, I didn't mean to upset you. And I, I don't know if I said it to her, but I thought, you can't upset me. I am upset. And it's also upsetting to me when people aren't comfortable with tears, that that yes. um, people need to learn to be comfortable with people's grief. There are other wiser cultures, I think, who, that probably deal with this better. We're even worse at dealing with dying. I mean, yes. as bad as we are with death, we're worse dealing with, with dying. dying. Yes, we are. Which is why in the U.S. we throw so much money and effort at keeping people alive as long as possible. last weeks, yeah. Beyond any meaning or hope. People don't like to talk about it. Right. But I was always happy, especially in those early months, when someone would let me talk about it. In some ways, it is a gift to me to be able to talk about Walter, about death, about life after loss, because it is reality. Now let's get back to Steve to hear about his reality after Mary Ellen's death. Mary Ellen and I had a love that never diminished over 42 years of marriage. In fact, I can say that I loved her more as time went on. That being said, she had a prolonged illness. It lasted for three years, so I was mentally prepared for her death. But although I knew a lot about bereavement and grief, experiencing it was a whole different equation. And I was put into a mental state that I did not anticipate or was not prepared for. I developed extreme anxiety and insomnia. I lost weight. I lost about 25, 30 pounds. I just didn't have any appetite. I was talking excessively. I realized I was doing it. I'd be speaking to people. I would fill every pause, and I wouldn't let them get a word in edgewise. My mind was racing, and I was going in a million directions. I knew I was doing it, but I couldn't stop. Fortunately, I was retired, and I didn't have to go to work, and I was able to take the time to grieve and take the time to go to therapy Right away, within weeks of her death, I enrolled in a group therapy for bereavement through a hospice organization. And i just like to tell everybody that they should reach out to hospice as early as they can when they're dealing with the terminal illness or a terminal condition. Because hospice is most effective when you bring them in, bring the team in, and you have time to get to know each other. After Mary Ellen died, almost everyone who had been at Mary Ellen's bedside came to Steve's house. So I had a house full of people, which is, uh, you know, very, very helpful. Um, these are all people that I love. And so I had as much support as anyone could ask for from their loved ones at that, you know, moment of crisis. 
The next two days turned into what Steve called an Irish shiva. People brought food. We were, we were laughing. We were drinking. We were telling stories. And that was very helpful to me because Mary Ellen and I both had the same attitude is that memorial services and funerals are really for the people who survived. You've lived in Chicago your entire life. So you have an, an incredible network, not just of family, but of friends. Um, and you were very aware of the need that you had to schedule things so that you were able to fill the void of time. I reached for my good old fashioned Rolodex, which I still had. And I just started going through the cards and calling people to tell them that Mary Ellen had died. And these are people that I hadn't talked to for ages. But each time we'd have a long, heartfelt conversation and people would say, well, let's stay in touch now. Let's not fall out of touch. And I tried to keep that going and, um, and, and build up a lot of new relationships. And Steve offered additional advice for anyone mourning the loss of a partner. Well, I had learned from studying and reading and being a hospice volunteer that um, there are certain things that you should and should not do immediately following the death of a loved one. Um, you know, you don't want to isolate yourself. You don't want to be inactive. You want to reach out to friends and you want to um, maintain and establish new friendships. Um, you don't want to hold your emotions in. You want to, you want to experience your grief and work through it um, with professional help if you, if, if, you, if you need be. You should not make major changes. You shouldn't sell your house or take your loved one's belongings and donate them to, to Goodwill immediately. You should delay those decisions for a year because you're not in your right mind. You are literally... Um, a, a different person and you're not thinking straight. Uh, another one is don't say no to positive invitations from people when they invite you to do stuff. One thing that you have that's almost like a superpower is you can reveal to a stranger that you are grieving. Um, I don't recommend that people do this flippantly, but I'll tell you, when you're in a tough situation and you're not in your right mental state, and you start to get into some problem or friction with somebody, or you can't get people to cooperate with you in a way that you think you should, as an ace in the hole, if you tell them, my wife died a few months ago, and I'm sorry I'm losing my temper, I'm sorry I don't have any patience, but I'm not myself, and I'm just trying to get through the day, and it's like a superpower because no one will continue to be angry with you. They'll forgive your anger if you calm down and tell them that. People are really understanding when you say this. Steve is healing by both preserving Mary Ellen's legacy and keeping busy by seeing old friends and seeking out new activities. I was very, very lucky to have such good friends and family, you know, to carry me over. And we're going to end this episode with Renee. One of the things that's been a comfort to her since Michael died is finding surprises around the house, some deliberately left by Michael, some not, including a mysterious red notebook. 
During his brain radiation treatments in the hospital the month before his death, Michael became easily confused. But in the midst of everything, when I would talk to him to try to keep him connected to, to daily life, I would say things to him and he'd say, listen, I've got all that's addressed in the red notebook. And he, he said this over and over again, and I, I had no idea what he was talking about. You know, I thought, okay, so there's this imaginary red notebook. And then one day I was going through a, a basket of, he had recipes and projects he was going to do. And I looked at this basket and there was a red notebook and I opened it up and it was filled with things he wanted to do in the future. And I just found today, I was sorting out some photos and I had taken a photo of a, uh, an anniversary note. It was um, written in 2014 on our anniversary and it said, I will do anything I have to to get another one of these with you. And in retrospect, I realized how much he did that. And, and it was amazing. And I, I, I don't know that it is within me, certainly not without him here, for me to have ever thought about going as far as he went in terms of treatment. He had some pretty barbaric treatment, I have to say. Um, but he wanted to be alive and was willing to try to march through fire to, to stay that way. Since Michael's death, a lot of the time you've spent is discovering and rediscovering Michael, that there are all these hidden things all over your house. Yeah. <laughs> I call him the gift that keeps on giving. That, that's what Michael is. It's, it's amazing. And that was, that was true almost immediately after he died. When he thought he was going to die in 2014, he had a heart, uh, I guess you'd call it a pendant, it has his own writing on it. And my daughter told me that she went with him to the jeweler when they were having this made. And he was in the middle of chemotherapy at the time. And she said his hands were just shaking like leaves. But he was able to scratch out my life, my love, my heart on this gold necklace. And then he didn't die. So he didn't give it to me right away. It took a while before he finally gave it to me. And I was so stunned to find out that in the midst of what he was going through, that he took the time to do that to help me. I mean, he was busy worrying about how to help me in the future. And he had had a mourning quilt made for me out of his clothes. So I didn't know any of this stuff, but he just sort of snuck all these out of here over time and had this made. It's on my chair that I sit in in my living room, and it's what I cover myself up, up with on the chilly nights. And it's his clothes. It's just unbelievable. That was finished in 2014 also, and I didn't get it until 2017. I think the deal was that he told the person who put this together for him not to give it to me until he had died. It has pockets, and when I got it, the pockets were filled with notes for me and notes for my kids and little little tags hanging out saying, always with you. And I mean, the idea that he was preparing uh, but preparing it in a giving way. So it's kind of been an amazing process to continue to unearth the, the, the machinations of Michael's mind. You know, that's, that's what it's like. And it's, it's fascinating to me. And it's wonderful because it keeps me uh, very connected to him. Michael is still such an enormous presence in your life. He is. He's here all the time. I just feel that Michael remains in my life. I mean, I've traveled alone a bunch of times, and I take classes. Um, I'm in a book club 
I'm now serving on the Historic Preservation Committee for my city. Um, I'm, I'm serving in an advisory capacity to some park district stuff. I mean, I'm engaged in the world. I'm just engaged with my ghost at my side. Sounds like it's an incredible source of comfort that you're still living in the home that you shared with Michael for so many years. I'm not only living in the home, I'm still sleeping on my side of the bed. I mean, a lot of people, I, it's been very interesting to have conversations with people and, and the milestones that they feel like they have to come to when they've lost their partner. And people say, I finally was able to take off my wedding ring. I'm never taking off my wedding ring. I, I don't intend to take it off. I like my rings and I'm wearing those. Um, I don't want to sleep in the middle of my bed. I sleep on my side. Michael's side is still his side and is untouched in the morning. Michael's ashes are in my dining room in a box. And when I die, I want my ashes mixed in with Michael's and I would like them to be strewn in our garden. I walked into my uh, widowhood completely blind with no understanding of what anything would feel like. And I'm just still making my way along in the most comfortable way that I can and, and going with what my gut tells me and not really caring about what anybody else thinks about that. I think that's the other thing I would probably think is the most important thing I want to say is that no matter what it is, you're okay. You know, um, you do what you do and, um, and that's all right. And that's how I hope people feel about me. I don't think that grief is something that you can put away. And the capacity for grief, for me, I think is as big as my capacity for any other feeling I have, for love or rage or all of the above. So, yeah, so I think grief is just my, my life's companion. Renee also coped with her grief by starting an online blog. I started my blog on January 1st of 2018. This has been one of the ways that I'm working out my feelings um, about Michael and about myself and about the world. My children think that I am way too intimate in my blogs. And I say, I say to them, I, I have long passed that place where, where you keep your most intimate feelings to yourself, because I don't know, I mean, if I went through this, shouldn't I be able to do something for somebody else? I'm happy to share anything, even if it only helps one person. That's one person who might have needed something that they didn't get someplace else, you know, and yeah, I'm glad to do it. Makes me happy. I want to live the way Michael would have lived had he been able to, which is to make the most of every single day that I have, no matter what. I'm trying to see places and to do things and to think about the joy Michael would take in knowing that I'm not just sitting around being miserable. So it's out of respect, too, for what I saw him demonstrate that is a real lesson for how to live your life. Because it's much harder to live in your moment than, than people think it is. Um, you know, we're always getting distracted. I, I, I don't let myself get distracted very much anymore. Steve's and Renee's and Mary's stories about their uniquely talented partners have a good deal in common. Their partners are still present in their lives in a very natural, vivid, comfortable way. They each have ensured that the meaning of their partner's life and work will not be forgotten. And despite their grief, all three have led happy and productive lives since their partner's deaths, in large part because of the happy and productive lives they lived with their partners for so many years. Mary Ellen's stunning art can still be viewed online. 
I also urge Lifespan listeners to read Renee's blog. It's entertaining and honest and compelling and so helpful, just as Renee describes. You can find links to both Mary Ellen's websites and Renee's blog in the description of this episode. I'm Jackie Wolf, professor of social medicine at Ohio University and the executive producer and host of Lifespan. Adam Rich is our producer, audio engineer, and audio editor. Join us next month when we talk to a journalist about intractable clinical depression. And I can assure you in advance, the episode will be engaging and helpful, not depressing. <laughs>